Alice Gray saved my life, not just once, but many times. When I itched, she brought me plants to rub on my skin. When I was sick, she made me tinctures. She kept me company when I was at my lowest. She planted a garden for my health. Sounds like a witch to me, Richard said bitterly. How else would she know those things? She is a midwife, like her mother before her. Are you like the king now, thinking all wise women and poor women and midwives are carrying out the devil's work? Why, he must be the largest employer in Lancashire. Welcome to Millennial Mystics, a podcast about modern mysticism and the people making it theirs. Together, we explore all angles of mystical subjects for both beginning and advanced practitioners and bring marginalized voices front and center. Prepare to laugh, learn, and decondition. So grab a pen and your grimoire and let's get going. Before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to pop on here with Kaylee and announce a new little promo we have going on that we're both pretty excited about. Pretty, very um, excited. Yes, pretty, very excited. It's <laughs> it's going to be really fun. We're doing a giveaway. So if you leave us a five-star review, you're going to get entered into a drawing to get a rating, reading from either me or Kaylee. So we're going to pick two winners mm-hmm. and I am offering my money blocks reading. So basically it's a tarot reading. We talk about what is blocking your money flow and what do you need to do to break through it? And Kaylee, you t- tell us about what you're offering because it's not as straightforward as a tarot reading, but it's way, way powerful. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be super, super fun. So it's going to be a resource realignment sort of toolkit uh, where you and I will meet and we will sort of intuitively walk through a lot, any of the blocks that you have um, around either receiving resource, hoarding resource, um, lacking resource and uh, some deconditioning goodies around that. Yeah. And resource is basically like feeling abundant, whether that's like monetarily or just energetically, kind of like that Venus energy we talked about. Major Venus energy, which like guys, Venus retrograde now. So, and I've, I've already started getting this question about, um, you know, like how to deal with, money and, and resource during a retrograde. And yeah, this is, it's, it's super juicy. So definitely. Yeah. And if you don't get picked, we both are selling these. So you can can come hit us up and schedule that if you don't get picked, but we're going to be doing the giveaway before our next episode. So if you want to get your reviews in early, because we will announce the winners at the end of next week's episode. 
Yes. New moon, dark moon goodies heading into the next month. So you guys can take that good, good stuff with you. Yep. So without, without getting too rambly, we're going to go ahead and let you enjoy the episode. Make sure you stay tuned at the end because I'm doing a reading from Stacy's new book in America. It's called The Lost Orphan and in the UK and abroad, it is called, what is it? The Foundling. That's it. So we'll be yeah. doing a reading from that. It is so juicy. You're going to want to stay on and get a little preview of it. Yeah, it's it's an intense subject, so definitely. Yeah, so go ahead and enjoy today's episode. So today we have with us my friend Stacy Halls. And Stacy. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I think this is like the podcast episode I've been most excited about. I've been talking about this with Kaylee like since we had the concept of this it's podcast. True. I'm not it's even true. joking. So, which I know Stacy's going to be like, yeah, she's going to be blushing over there. (laughs) So, so Stacy is an author and this is something Kaylee and I talked about is that we really wanted to dedicate like at least like one podcast a month or so to really exploring different cultural aspects of mysticism and like how it comes up in literature, movies, TV, things like that, art, you name it. Music. Yeah. Oh, music, Mm -hmm. everything. And so when when we had talked about that, uh, Stacy was the first person who came to mind because first of all, we're friends. I I met her back in 2012, which seems so was long it? ago. Yes, it was no, 2012. It, it was it was that long ago. Yeah. Wow. And I will I will give the brief history on our friendship. So also that wasn't that long ago, but I, I guess know. it was. It I was. It was, <laughs> it was the start of the decade. We're now in a new decade. I know. Oh, that's man. crazy. I know. We're close to 20, uh, 2022 than we are to 2012. So, yeah. Yikes. Oh, where did the time go? Oh, and, oh, anyway. So, I met Stacy because I was studying abroad in London and I had an internet friend who became a real life friend and he kind of brought me into his crew. And Stacy is basically the only girl in it. So, so Stacy and I became like became good friends, and we used to have like Thursday night dinners every other week. I'd go to her house, and she'd make me. This is what she would do: she would make dinner, and she would send me back with a pile of books. She'd be like, we'd be talking, and she'd be like, read this, read this, read this. I would read them and then bring them back, and then <laughs> get more books. So I think I read more when I studied abroad than than I have in my life, really. Amazing. I love it. That's awesome. You would bring me, was it pecan pie or pumpkin pie? I brought you pumpkin pie. Pumpkin pie. Oh my God, I've never Mm. had it before. And I'm still to this day obsessed with it. Once I even went to Whole Foods because it's like the only place you could get it in London. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And it was just not the same. No. Pumpkin pie is the best thing I make. It was unreal. Yeah. And what's funny is that I, so I left Stacy with a, because I, it was toward the end because I left in November. So it was right Mm -hmm. before like Thanksgiving in America. So I like made pumpkin pie and I gave Stacy several slices, one to give to (laughs) her boyfriend at the time, who's now her husband. And she ate them all. She didn't leave any for him. <laughs> don't. Don't leave any. Why would you leave some? Yeah. Absolutely. Don't even tell him. <laughs> Eight years later, nothing has changed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, that's that's like the history of our friendship. But one thing is that like, you know, I remember Stacy was always like really into like witchy books and stuff. So she sent me like a few of them about the 
Like there was at least one I remember about like the Pendle witch trials and stuff like that. So like, I always knew this was a witchy bitch. Like yeah. I always knew this. And this was, this was before <laughs> your witchy awakening, right? 2012 was. Yeah. Yes, before mine. Yeah. And yeah. so like, I think we, we both had that fascination. So this is back like before, like, I mean, I still consider myself like a baby witch now, but I mean like the, it was always there. Yeah. So fast forward now, Stacy's like a hotshot author. <laughs> and <laughs> and her her first book that she came out with is called The Familiars. Um, and it's been out for a little while now. And it's all about the Pendle witch trials. But, you know, and I and I it took me a while to read it just because like I can't read a book until I'm ready to read the book, you know. And I read it, so it was probably like a month or two ago at this point. And I remember I was like like this bitch had me up at like 3 a.m. with this <laughs> reading this book. Like I could not put it down. And I was like, and I know she was like, right. She's been working on her third novel. And so I knew she was like in the thick of writing. And I was like sending her shit in the middle of the night. Like, oh my God, what? This Never apologize for sending those kind of messages to a writer. Because <laughs> everyone's like, I'm so sorry to message, message so late. And I'm like, never apologize for that these are the best messages you can receive as a writer is knowing that you kept someone up and that they couldn't stop reading so I could not stop reading and that that's a huge compliment because like you know these days even though I do enjoy reading I feel like I have to be very diligent about it most of the time like setting aside the time or like making it part of my routine and this just like consumed me for a week like I <laughs> like I could not put it down oh, good. well yeah. that's the ultimate compliment for me is is hearing that people can't put it down because that's what you want from a story, isn't it? You don't want to be able to put a story down. I'd much yeah. rather hold that than, you know, oh, your prose is so beautiful or, um, you know, the more kind of literary compliments that. Yeah. No, I forgot to eat because of reading. Yeah. That's the yeah. compliment. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Like when yeah. I was toward the end, like I woke up, it was one of those things where it was like, okay, I have to go to sleep. And the second I woke up the next morning, like, you know, I'm so like I'm engaged to somebody who is a, like he's an English professor essentially. And he's a writer as well, but like, you know, very like, he'd probably appreciate the prose compliments more. Um, <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's like one of those. So um, like I woke, and so he always spends his morning, he'll always start reading or whatever. And that's just like part of our routine. But like, I'm normally like, on the phone, doing fun things. I woke up, I made coffee. I sat down and I was like, I got to finish this. This is amazing. <laughs> and I think I was annoying him because I kept being like, oh my God, oh my God, this <laughs> happened. So I like kept updating him on the plot and he was just kind of like, thanks. <laughs> okay. Um, I'd love if but, someone filmed themselves reading it just so I could see the reaction. I would have, like it was, it was really good. So there were um, some great plot twists. It's, um, but what I loved most about it is that it really examined the misogyny behind the witch trials. Like a lot of us, yeah. we kind of think of the, I think like when you grow up and you're exposed to that narrative of like what the witch trials were in the world, it's almost like um, you kind of see it as like a plot, almost like a story. Like you don't really see it as something that was like a real like, that was a real tragedy. Like that, that exactly. doesn't really come through. Right. And well, there's, there's no self-identification in it. It's, it's removed in like hung up on 
you know, a hook as a framed story of history. And it's not something that you can imagine yourself in because you're like, oh, well, they were scared of these things that we don't believe in anymore. Or like, you know, yeah. I can't even imagine what it was like to live like, you know, someone in that time period, you know, like, I can't even imagine what it would be like to get dressed. So like, yeah. how could I possibly translate this? Relate to that. Right. And, you know, certain, um, you know, historical narratives will parallel you know, witch hunts and like the term witch hunt will be um, used for things that have absolutely nothing to do with witchcraft. And so, you know, there's an effort to bring that in there, but it's, it still isn't quite personal, right? It's, it's still right. historic, historical and. Um, yeah, there's no individualism involved. And I definitely can relate to that. And also, I think, I also, I think part of it is you thinking, particularly when you're younger, because I grew up in Lancashire, um, Pendle is in Lancashire so the Pendle witches of which there were a dozen are uh, kind of um known as the Pendle witches or the Lancashire witches interchangeably and I think as well as all those things you've just mentioned part of you if you kind of examine it is a bit like well maybe they were you know maybe there mm. really were witches 400 years ago because I kind of think that the way the way that the the Pendle witches were kind of grouped together and almost disnified in the place that I'm from like you can go to Pendle which is a borough um it's not a town but there are lots of little villages at the foot of Pendle Hill which is um the, the it's this kind of hill that's just a, a bit shy of being a mountain that is kind of synonymous with the Pendle witch trials and um there are all these little villages at the bottom of it that have tourist shops that sell you know, spell books and they sell, they sell witches and they sell kind of like paraphernalia based on the witch trials. And one of my uncles actually makes witches for the, for the tourist shops, like wow. life-size witches and ones that hang from the ceiling. And they're these, you know, hook-nosed, warty, kind of like lots of petticoats and, and tall hats and things that we would associate with the kind of hocus-pocus brand of um, witchery. Yeah. And Growing up there, I never really um, kind of examined that or like pushed beyond it. And, you know, it's so ingrained in the in the fabric of the area. The bus, the local bus service is called the Witch Way. Um, there's loads of there's loads of stuff like that. And it, it's kind of, I guess it's kind of I've never been to Salem, but I it's a bit like Salem. So I, I live a stone's throw from Salem. I'm I'm not that far from it. And it is oh. yeah, it is very, very similar in like the way that it's commodified. Mm -hmm. Um I I wonder though, is it so one of the things that's pretty common in Salem is that it actually has turned into a bit of a mecca for um modern day witch craft practitioners. And right. so there is actually a great wealth of people who um not only understand paganism, but mysticism in general. And so you can find some really wonderful um, readers and healers in that area. Is Pendle the same way? Not remotely. Mm, That's great that Salem has evolved in that way, but Pendle yeah. is, um, it probably hasn't changed that much over the centuries, you know. Um, yeah. And the, the witch trials in that sense are kind of, they're kind of like stuck in amber. They're, um, Oh, yeah. Stuck in that time, and no one has really, no one has really cared to kind of evolve it or um, 
move on from it in a way that kind of encompasses more how we see witchcraft nowadays or ex- or examine that you know you can go to Lancaster Castle and you can go down into the dungeon that they were held in and on Halloween they have like people dress up as witches with these you know crooked noses and dirt all over their faces and um yeah. they're quite they're quite villainized there still yeah wow um, and I never really thought about them as I never really thought about them as individuals until I got the idea for the novel I'd always everyone has heard of the Pendle witches everyone's heard of the Lancashire witches whatever you want to call them where I live but I think that there's kind of one um female witch because some men were executed as well there's one female witch who I would say is the most famous of them who is the name that most people if you were asked to name one of the Pendle witches most people would say this one which is Alice Nutter just because she she's kind of taken on her own mythology in a way because she was a essentially a landowner she was a member of the gentry class whereas mm-hmm. all the rest were really impoverished um and illiterate and definitely not landowner in, in any sense um so she's the kind of most famous one but I couldn't have named any others other than her mm. wow And I think that that's a great segue into like what the book is about. So the book is about, it tells a story of like two women, one who's um, a young noblewoman who's been having difficulty like bringing her heir into the world. So she's had like three miscarriages and like the one right before was very devastating and she almost dies during it, which that all, that's just like told in the backstory. And she's able like she finds a midwife who is part of the like she's definitely like from like much lower class like somebody one of these women who like lives in poverty and she's basically a natural healer so in the sense that like she's using herbs she's using things of the earth to treat different symptoms to help things and she's been trained as a midwife so so basically the big controversy is that this young noblewoman who in the beginning of the book has really only lived to produce an heir. Her whole life is wrapped up in her husband and that identity. And she's like, you know, very alone because she's so young. A lot of the women in her class around her are, you know, these much older wives. So she's very, very alone. And she connects with this other young woman who's a midwife and they form a bond together where she sees <clears throat> the power in these natural remedies and she's actually being able to like take care of a lot of her a lot of the problems that like beset her pregnancies in the past so it's in, in developing this friendship it's developing this friendship against the backdrop of England at that time where like witchcraft was starting to become like a rumor. And if you go into a little bit of the history there, it was like started with like, forget what King it was. He was like going to go. Yeah. King James going to get his wife who is in like France or something like that. Mm -hmm. And like some women came out and they were like, ha, we caused that storm that like major, like weren't that prevented you from coming to get your wife. And so it, it really like, yeah, yeah. It was like some big thing. And so it started like this whole thing. King James ended up writing the book demonology about like how to identify witches and all this stuff. And it kicked off this huge fear. And what we see in this book is that, you know, it, it really becomes targeted toward these women healers. 
because Mm -hmm. that was seen as like, because people didn't understand it. And I believe because medicine at that time was becoming like, like there were medics, like doctors who were like of the upper class and had this training. And then you had these healers and they almost threatened that industry. And I feel like, yeah. So there was like that, that issue. So it really felt like, you know, well, what they're doing isn't legitimate. It's witchcraft. It was something that they didn't understand. And this was predominantly women and it was predominantly like very like impoverished women as well. So it was almost like them having the power to receive an income, them having the power to like engage in some kind of autonomy outside of men and outside their husbands. And it was almost like they had to keep them in line. And that really comes through in the book because this noble woman is developing this friendship with her midwife, the witch trials start, and her midwife, her name gets thrown into the mix. And so she's like on the, she's on the run. And like this noble woman really comes into her her own, putting her neck out to like try and save her friend. Mm -hmm. And I won't spoil the end, but that's basically like the backdrop of this novel. And what, what was really powerful was the lens of feminism that came through and the lens of, um, you know, classism. And it really depicted like what this was about. Like it came across that it was a violent genocide, even though it was so few women, like so few people, it humanized them in a way that I had never experienced. Um, it's um, in this case, it would be femicide, right? Femicide. Yes. Femicide. Yeah. Ooh, I've not heard that word before. Actually. Yeah. Femicide. Um, yeah. So yeah, genocide would have to be targeting a genetic group, whereas uh, okay, yes. femicide, it would be targeting um, female identifying. Yes, um, absolutely. So it was just like, the, so of the Pendle witches, um, there were two men accused mm-hmm. and disputed. But yeah, I'm not disputing the fact that witches historically have generally been women, um, because they have been. Um, and I and I think that's part of why, frankly, nobody's really cared to explore the tragedy of this. Is because like women's lives haven't mattered in history. Right. They were absolutely inconsequential, yeah. And like you would like you had mentioned earlier about the doctors, um, they were entirely in, inconsequential to the upper classes who were, of course, doing the accusing anyway. Like people like Roger Knoll, who was the magistrate of Pendle at the time, he would never have used the services of a wise woman, which is what they were known as um, back then, because he would have been able to afford a doctor. And these wise women were, yeah, they were relying on, you know, um, nature and they were using herbs and natural remedies. Um, but that's no different to what apothecaries were offering or physicians, doctors, physics at the time. But of course, all those occupations were exclusively male and they were never once, well, they were once, I mean, but they were very rarely accused of witchcraft. And I think it was because I think, there's no kind of one size fits all reason as to why these women were being accused. But I think like you mentioned, they were in lots of ways existing kind of outside of the lines that society had prescribed for women um, at that time, which was, you know, as wives, as mothers. And lots of the Pendle witches were, um, you know, either had illegitimate children or they were unmarried. They were definitely unusual um, and people were wary of them and suspicious, but also um, this, the very same people who would have relied on their help for medicine um, 
were kind of the ones doing the accusing in the end as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's quite difficult nowadays to get a, to really understand the kind of frenetic energy that would have started up when the accusations started to take place and um, how quickly and, you know, how quickly and how fatally you would damn your own neighbour, you know? Yeah, well, that's one of the things that is so striking about um, the Pendle Witches is exactly how many of the accused were killed. I mean, it was only one. Yeah, so it's it's very striking. And one of the things that strikes me kind of over and over again about the men who tend to be pulled into these accusations is that they're usually familial to the, orig- the original accused. Um, and the original accused is usually an elderly woman. Um, and so it's, you know, kind of tied up into this tie of blood. So, you know, is there something inherited in that? And then is, you know, like vilifying, you know, this, the crone idea of. Yeah. Guilt by association. And in the case, in the case of the Pendle, um, the Pendle trials, which took place at Lancaster, which is the kind of capital of the county. Um, what happened there was. Um, about four women were initially accused, three or four women, and then very quickly they started to kind of confess and and list other names of of their kind of cohorts or of other witches and wizards in the area. Um, and we don't know how these confessions were extracted, but we can kind of assume that they were under horrific torture. And mm-hmm. um, one of the things that made me interested in writing about the Pendle Witches when I started to look into when I started to research the novel was the fact that an awful lot of them admitted their guilt and the penalty at the time for being a witch was execution so that made me think why on earth would they admit their guilt knowing the penalty was execution but we don't know what they were promised maybe leniency or freedom um and a lot of them also admitted to having familiar spirits so in the bible in the King James Bible um, which was published a few years before 1612, which is when The Familiars takes place. Um, it's identified in that, that the surest sign of a witch is is a person who has a familiar spirit. So that kind of, that was always the working title for me because I wanted to um, include this kind of element of kind of magical realism where... Mm-hmm. I didn't want it. I didn't want it ever to be a novel where there are like speaking animals in it because that's not what it is at all. It's not his dark materials. Um, they're not demons in that sense. But I right. wanted to kind of um, imagine what the hysteria would have been like at that time, where you start to see people's pets as potentially having these um, additional magical qualities. Um, yeah. So, and there were loads of things that. I think quite early on when I got the idea for the novel, I am, um, I can tell you about that if you like. I was, I was literally going to ask. I love this. I love this story. So you tell, tell yes, us, please, 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 oh, please. Well, the idea for the novel came to me, um, in, it was 2016 and I was looking for an idea for a novel. I'd recently finished, um, a manuscript that was not historical fiction it was contemporary fiction and I'd submitted it to agents and was hoping to be offered representation and wasn't offered, offered, offered representation um, by any of the agents that I submitted to. So I just kind of thought I'll put that one away and I'll 
try and think of, I'll try I'll write something else like I wasn't too disheartened I went with my mum to Gawthorpe Hall which is a national trust property in Lancashire and the ironic thing is is that it's probably a 15 minute drive from the house that I grew up in all my life and I'd never been until this afternoon when I can't remember why we decided to go but we did um so we went along and ever since I was a child I've been kind of obsessed with stately homes and um like national trust property so I don't know if you do you guys know what national trust is it's just it's this kind of like a public funded body um of historic homes and stately homes and things like that it preserves them and it and it opens them to the public like Downton Abbey for the the Americans who don't know much (laughs) <laughs> like Downton Abbey. However, Highclere Castle, which I have been to as well, is not National Trust. That is a private really? property. Oh. So you have to, they, they, the family still lives in it, so they open it a few weekends a year. But National Trust is just owned by the public purse. Um, <laughs> so we went along to Gawthorpe Hall, and I just really loved the house. And sort of ever since, ever since I was young, I always have been fascinated with. Um, I think it is the domestic, really. I'm not so much interested in kings and queens and um, wars and that side of things. I'm much more interested in, like, the domestic, everyday, particularly servants. Like, when we'd go on school trips to places like Gawthorpe Hall, I'd be the person looking in, like, the kitchens and the servants' quarters while everyone else is, like, while my friends like, this is so boring, when can we leave? I'd be like, this is amazing. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. you get to see where people would have lived and the, the kind of work that they would have done. And I think it comes from a place of me just imagining what life would have been like for me, maybe. I don't know. I wonder if you've got a past life as a servant mm-hmm. one of those. I would definitely have been a servant, that's for sure. I would not have been one of the, I would not have had a master bedroom on the first floor. That's definitely... <laughs> I always say like, um, I'm, I'm always like, you know, if I were grew up in any kind of like historical era, I would have been a prostitute 1000%. (laughs) Like, I'm like, that's the only way you had any kind of autonomy as a woman. So I was like, yeah, yeah, none. Like, so that's one that's come up for me is that like, I, and I actually considered it not that long ago, just to be left the fuck alone was to become a nun. And like, (laughs) sure. Yeah. You're beholden to the church, but are you really? Like, yeah. do they check on their nuns as much as they do, like, monks and priests? They don't because you're not you're not actually performing mass. You're not doing the things that the church actually cares about other than making shit. So, yeah, you get left the fuck alone. This um, is brilliant. You need to read over the podcast, The Prostitute and the Nun. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I love, I love how things are. Um, well, I would definitely have died around the age of seven and I would also have probably been like a child servant in a house wow. like the, the lowest of the low I'd have probably been in like the laundry scullery or something um but yeah I was kind of we were walking around and I just got a really nice feeling about the house and didn't necessarily think it was somewhere that I needed to write about but I felt like I kind of connected to it in a way that um happens to me sometimes I mean I'm not I'm not spiritually in that sense where I can kind of you know I I can't literally go in and and know who lived there and what life was like there but I guess on some level that is what happens and um yeah we were looking around and I realized that from the back of the house you could see Pendle Hill which is what I mentioned earlier which um is connected to the, the Pendle witches and I didn't realize that it was so close and it instantly made me think of the witches 
and then I just got this kind of not fully formed but definitely grain of an idea of, of a story about a woman who lived in this house who was this kind of gentry woman who was connected to someone or had a friendship with another young woman accused of witchcraft in the Pendle witch trials um and they kind of arrived fully formed in that sense but then I had to go away and and look at who I wanted to focus on because I knew I would base it on a real um woman accused of witchcraft and like I said I didn't know any of their names other than Alice Nutter who I know was a bit older um so my research led me to Alice Gray who is the midwife who Fleetwood Shuttleworth who's the name of the gentry woman hires um and befriends I won't tell you why I chose her, um, but I also fully planned to invent the protagonist, invent the mistress of the house. Mm. Um, and this happens to me quite a lot in my writing where pe- I know people don't believe me, I just think I'm making it up, but um, I decided that it was going to be, you know, a young woman who lived in this house who most likely was connected to the woman accused of witchcraft because she was her midwife and I thought she'll be pregnant she needs this she needs they needed to need each other quite badly and it for it to be, to be an equal thing it couldn't just be this kind of flimsy friendship because those those two people from those such different walks of life would never have associated with each other unless it was on kind of like an employer employee basis and also I needed it to be more urgent than your average kind of maid servant um so I thought I'll make her a midwife and then I can incorporate um the you know the knowledge of herbs and the kind of quote-unquote magical elements of it um there's nothing to suggest that Alice Gray was a midwife I made that up but I very much planned to invent Fleetwood's character and in my head I called her Rebecca <laughs> spelt the old-fashioned way with like a k mm. um and just sort of started to make these vague notes on Rebecca, the mistress of this house. And then I went away to the British Library in London, where I live, and started to research Gawthorpe Hall itself. And very quickly found out about the family that lived there, which is the Shuttleworth family, um, for whom it was their seat for centuries. They only sold it to the National Trust in the 1970s, I think. Um, and came across Fleetwood Shuttleworth who really was um mistress of the house in 1612 and she was 17 years old and she had this amazing name her name was Fleetwood her Christian name was Fleetwood and um I don't want to give away the ending of the book but something that I needed to happen in the book she this real person did as well and I just thought this is too odd this is too serendipitous to ignore mm, um, psychic psychic so shit is happening here that's what I'll happened decide whether or not you put this on the podcast but basically I found out that she had her first child in August 1612 which is when <gasps> the trials took place oh um, my god <clears throat> and there is nothing to connect her with any of the Pendle witches it was totally made up like I made the whole thing up in terms of bringing two, these two separate strands of history together and what I needed to happen in my story happened in, in reality. In reality, yeah. That's well, fucking wild. No, it's I think it. you probably, I think you had a past life in Gawthorpe Hall. I'm pretty sure. Like, I'm, I'm You watched it. You watched yeah. it. Yeah. It does feel like home to me. And I know that's such a stupid thing to say about a stately home. It's got like a million bedrooms, but 
one of the things that I liked about it was it feels like a family home. It's quite, it's on the small side. It's nowhere near the size of like Downton Abbey, for instance. Um, it looks like a miniature Downton, but it was quite small and homely and a bit cozy. And straight away, I just wanted to go away and write, which is kind of annoying when you're a historical writer, because although I'd not written anything historical before then, you just want to start and you then have to go and do the research. find out what life was like then. Otherwise, you know, your story is going to kind of fall flat. So, um, yeah, I just yeah. went away and started researching. I wonder, so I wonder if you were Rebecca, if that's where that name came from. Ooh. I don't know. I know. Oh my Do you see, right? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I think it's safe to say you definitely like, I mean, everybody has psychic powers. That's a thing. Everybody yeah. has, a, has that sixth sense. It's like, we just call it by other names. We call it by like, you know, trust your gut, follow your intuition, but everybody has that and they have it in different ways. And I think it's safe to say like you def like you're, I think you're actually channeling a lot of your writing. Like, I think it's actually like divinely inspired. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think even though it sounds wanky to say about yourself, I'm quite an instinctive writer. Mm. Um, and I actually don't know where it comes from. Like when I sit down and type, because that's what it feels like most of the time. It doesn't feel like writing, it feels like typing. Um, I don't know where that comes from. And I'm not saying it's divinely inspired, but for me, it's not necessarily conscious. I don't fixate on what I'm writing. I just sort of let it channel and flow from somewhere and just go with it and then sometimes I'll look back and at what I've written and think where on earth did that come from or like little things will fall into place like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle um and I think if you have trust in that process like a lot of a lot of the time I'll feel the need to just like put something in that I didn't necessarily plan Mm -hmm. and I just trust that that is that that's happened for a reason and then later on I'll be like oh that's why I put that in there and now I know how to tie that up or I know why I put that clue in. It's kind of like leaving little breadcrumbs or clues for yourself. Right. So you work out later on down the line yeah. why you put them there. I love that. Yeah. And it's it's funny because like you describe that process exactly like how my channeling works. So when I do, whether I'm doing readings or I'm doing coaching, I say that like my thoughts, like I don't necessarily feel my thoughts. They're my thoughts, right? Mm. Um, but when I, when I like channel or I'm giving like... Um, you know, I, it's like advice from whoever, whether you want to call it a higher power or somebody's guides or whatever. Um, it's like almost like it comes from the back of my head and it's like I'm talking or I'm writing before I'm aware of what's what I'm going to say next. Yeah. Um, exactly yeah. Yeah. And if I had to like the, the closest thing I can describe as a physical sensation is like, it's, you know, like when you tickle the inside of your forearm or something, it's like it kind of yeah. tickles, but you can't really describe it as a tickle. It's like, that in my head, like in the back of my head, like it's the lightest, lightest sensation that I really had to like focus to describe. It's like trying to describe an orgasm. It's like, how do you describe an orgasm? That's you that know, it. that's a yeah. Scorpio. Yeah. <laughs> I'll describe an orgasm for you. <laughs> but actually that reminds me, we didn't ask you about your, we didn't um, astrologically profile you yet. So we just um, jumped I, right into it. I know yeah. we, we were too excited to talk about um, all the work that you do. So can you tell us um, your big three, your sun sign, your moon sign and your ascendant? Yes, my sun sign is Virgo. 
by about one hour, I believe, or maybe even less than that. Um, no, Kaylee said it was five minutes. It's, it's more than that. It's it was a, it was a little bit more than that. It was probably closer to an hour. Um, but yeah, it's very very close. Very very close. Um, so I'm just about Virgo. That's my sun sign. Um, uh, my rising sign is Scorpio, and my moon sign is Taurus. Mm. Earthy. The moon sign makes sense. I attract a lot of Tor- um, Taurians into my life, so mm. that makes sense. That and Scorpios, I have a lot of you. Yeah. Well, mm. and I think that the rising sign for Scorpio fits with a lot of what we're talking about in this too, like to have that as part of like an identifier for you so close to occultism definitely makes sense to me. Um, I haven't really looked into um Scorpio or Taurus signs. I couldn't really tell you much about either. Start reading um, the horoscope for Scorpio. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think you'll find some understanding there because you're pretty witchy. Yeah. You're like naturally witchy. I love it. Apart from the stereotypes that Scorpios are like the sting in the tail, which I Mm. do definitely have. um, So there's an interesting, as far as like animals go, um, the Scorpios are are tied to a couple of different animals, and one of them is actually the dove. Oh, um, yeah. So diving into Scorpio stuff, there's there's some really interesting um, juicy animal stuff involved in it. It's not just scorpions, um, and that's it, it, there's a few interesting things because Scorpios kind of get a bad rap for being introverted and avoidant, and um, that's also true, but not you know, and, um, they're just selective. They're selective with who's very selective. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I would say with Scorpios as well, um, with the, with the stinger thing, it's not even like, it's, it's not so much that they use it. It's more that it's just like there. I always say that people with strong Scorpio energy, they don't have to take anything into their own hands. So the, what's interesting, yeah, they, like any Scorpios I know are people with heavy Scorpio energy. They don't have to do anything when they're angry. Like I always say they, karma is in the palm of their hands. So like they'll get angry, but then they'll be like, I don't need to do anything. Like one of my friends um, who I studied abroad with actually, like she's like, her personality's like a Disney princess who drops f-bombs like that's (laughs) so she's like the sweetest person you'll ever meet and like she wouldn't even get angry when people wronged her she'd be like that's okay something's coming without fail it was always like the worst shit always happened Mm -hmm. to people yes yeah yeah. so it's like the they don't even need to use the stinger it's more that like people know it's there for sure it's for me if i'm visibly angry i'm not angry that's just my sagittarius moon being loud if i'm angry you don't see it it's scary yeah it's yeah but so one thing that's interesting to me about scorpio energy and this idea of venom is that they're immune to their own venom and so it's there's a funny thing that happens like people think um think of like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies for a Scorpio, you can drink the poison. It's not going to kill you, you know? And so there is a certain tolerance level for, um, for the shit of the world, so to speak, and an ability to like see it for what it is 
and not let it drag you down that I think is really important for, for Scorpio energy. Um, but anyway, we could, we could talk about that forever. <laughs> and, and that's so interesting with the novel too, is that like, that's essentially what you did. Like you took this, you took this event that's like a, a real tragedy and you raised it up to something, to something more. Yeah. I mean, like even aside from just like the backdrop of the events and the tragedy and everything, like the main character, like I'm a sucker for a book that has good character development. I always say like, it doesn't even need to have a good plot. Like love, I really love like love in the time of cholera because I say like nothing happens except two people change. That's it. And yeah. I love it because like yeah. that's all I need. What's amazing is that your protagonist really does that as well. So Fleetwood, I remember when I started reading this book, I was like talking to Ian and I was like, I don't like this protagonist <laughs> like in the beginning. And he was like, yeah. why? And I was like, I was like, she's such a pick me ass bitch. And he was like, what? And I was like, all she cares about is like, what's my husband up to? And like, she's just kind of like mousy and obnoxious. And it was perfect because like you're not really meant to like her energy no. in the beginning and she like blossoms into this like kind of like she comes into like this warrior queen energy and oh, I, I love, love it yeah. yeah so it's yeah. like she really finds her footing not yeah. just as like you know the like the very young um like woman of this estate like running a home at such a young age yeah. she also just like comes into her own identity and like shifts how she sees herself and finds her voice which is which was like the most compelling and like amazing part of the book is that she just like really becomes this like you know fearless fearless woman by the end it's amazing oh, thank you. well yeah mm. that, i mean that definitely needed to happen because i think the least interesting stories for me to read are kind of ones where the protagonist or the main character, whatever, just is good through and through, you know, a classic hero or heroine. And they're just kind of this like steady, stable presence and all this kind of shit is going on and happening. And they're just, and they always believe in themselves. Like that's not that interesting to read about. I, I'm very interested in how people change and, you know, kind of, this sounds really cheesy but like searching for the hero inside yourself because it is in everyone it is in everyone um but only I don't think that's cheesy at all no, it. it's not, yeah no that's like that's the message that most people need to hear um another thing I wanted to mention is like how what great timing this book was for like these times because I feel like there's such a resurgence right now of women taking back their power yeah. yeah. And like and that's getting not something that I ever yeah. either predicted or <coughs> excuse me, um, was consciously aware of when I was writing it. Because the funny thing with historical writing is you can always find something to connect to or relate to it now. Um and I think that I think there'll always be an appetite for stories about the struggles that women have faced historically um because they've by no means gone away and they're just in different guises and um when I sat down to write the familiars I was I definitely wasn't trying to kind of um put the gaze on society now because it's so kind of dealing with interior lives and um these two characters like you say who who ultimately change each other 
the the kind of external and societal things are things you have are things you think about after so like I always say that when you write a novel you don't know until after you finish writing it what it's about and even the witch hunt is still kind of a term that we use nowadays in the sense that yeah we're not strung up and executed for identifying as witches anymore but um even to do with the as I mentioned earlier the Pendle witches were women who um kind of existed outside society lines that society had prescribed for them and nowadays that that hasn't really gone anywhere um you know in terms of women um kind of going down their own path or choosing not to be mothers or choosing not to get married or all these things that we like to think we've moved on from but haven't really clearly and even just the kind of terminology that oh that exclusively refers to women like I really try to try to avoid using terms like fiery feisty um bossy bossy these kind of words that would never be used about men um because I think it's easy to sit back and think oh thank god we live you know now because that would never that would never happen now we'd never be strung up and executed for practicing witchcraft but in many ways it's in many ways it's obviously a much better time to be a woman but also not really because how much has changed really in 400 years yeah not much I mean like me even me personally, like when I, when I was a teenager, me and my friends used to identify as witches and we'd, um, we were kind of part of Wicca. I don't know if you'd say, you wouldn't say like a member, but we used to practice Wicca, um, mm-hmm. like white witchcraft. And it was all very light and all very lighthearted and just fun. And um, <clears throat> we didn't take it too seriously, but I was probably the one who took it most seriously out of all of us. And I was the one who bought the spell book and um you know on our lunch breaks at school we'd go up into the woods and we were obsessed with the craft and that kind of thing and that's where it all <laughs> yeah. came from welcome to our podcast obviously yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely found my tribe now but um even then and I'm talking this was like the very early noughties we would never have kind of broadcast the fact that we would go and do that in our no. lunch breaks mm-hmm. right this was, this was like 15 years ago like tw- nearly 20 years ago you know, a long time since 400 years ago, a long time since 1612, but still there's that kind of negative, or there was 15 years, right? Not so much now, but that kind of negative, those negative connotations of you being a bit weird and a bit creepy. And also I think it particularly comes from men because I know that like, say, say the boy, if the boys found out about what they were doing, I could imagine their first reaction the first reactions would be, oh, you're doing either love spells or revenge spells because they're always mm. going to think it's about them, isn't it? Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and that clearly hasn't changed in the past 400 years either because men assume it's the magic is either to, you know, to make them, trick them into falling in love with you or or take out revenge on them, um, which is hilarious, really. And to be right, honest, like that, we're only doing, but <laughs> we're only operating in a world to to change theirs. Like that's yeah. the only agency we have is to change their world. Like we we don't have a it's world to make of our them own. Out of control. Yeah, like there isn't a world unto ourselves. Um, and if I, and if I think about why we used to go and do that, I think it is because 
like I, I wrote a piece about this last year um about why I was a witch I never really thought about why before but I think it's because when you're that age and it never that feeling never really goes away but it's particularly bad when you're a teenager you just feel so out of control don't you and you just feel so yeah. kind of your future is like yawning quite blankly ahead of you you've no idea what you want you've no idea if you're gonna what you're gonna be what you're gonna do and it's just some kind of attempt at having agency, some agency in your life yeah. and taking some, taking some of that uncertainty and control back um and I could I totally understand why people why people do like I I have full I get it I do I mm-hmm. just completely get it didn't did you go to catholic school no but I'm from no. a catholic family right okay that's it yeah so the yeah. three of us are um I don't know are you still a catholic or not? um Christmas time. Yeah. <laughs> and when Aren't I got married, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Kaylee and I went to, we met because we went to Catholic school together. So right. like in elementary school. So yeah, we under, uh, we understand like the. the and that's one of the things I should mention about the Lancashire trials as well, is that um, when King James the first was on the throne, he's a Protestant, he was a Protestant king and hated Catholics, was very fearful and suspicious of them. And the Northwest of England where Lancashire is, was kind of a bit of a strong, a bit of a Catholic stronghold at that time in the early 17th century. And um, there were rumours that the key players in the gunpowder plot had fled to Lancashire and were hiding there. So King James definitely had his eye on that area. And Catholics, it's still quite a, a Catholic area. I'm from a Catholic family. And um, there's a lot of so witchery popery um popery means catholicism so those mm. terms have quite literally got mixed up um and lots of the you know the old catholic ways involve um what essentially kind of look like spells like the prayers that people would say um a lot of latin involved and a lot of the spells quote unquote that i read about in the trial transcripts just to me kind of look like latin prayers like catholic prayers um so that it was very muddled. Um, I'd say the, th- the three main things that were muddled at that time were wise women, Catholics, and um, witchcraft. Mm. People thought they were interchangeable. P- people thought they were, if you were involved in one, you were naturally involved in all three. And the other people accused of witchcraft in the Lancashire trials, um, there was about a dozen people in total, all happened to be at the same house on Good Friday. And it was against the law at that time to practice any, to have any religious practice on Good Friday. So it's hard to say whether the fact that they, whether they were prosecuted because they were just Catholics or there was something else going on, but there was definitely a strong Good Friday connection, which obviously was not acceptable at that time. Mm. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's not something I had thought about either. I mean, like you, it just—it's definitely explored in the book. You know, it's the Good Friday connection. Um, and it and was I guess you, law to be a Catholic. I don't know if I made—I don't know if I made that yeah. the point that clearly, but you could be executed for openly practicing Catholic, um, the Catholic religion, Catholicism. So it was a risky time to have your head above the parapet. And um, as most of these things start, the Lancashire trials kind of. Um, kicked off with the magistrate deciding to take a name of everyone at ch- take the names of everyone who attended the local churches and um catholics wouldn't have attended the the church of england at that time so wow yeah um 
yeah, there is like, I remember there's a part in the book too, where like one of the characters is a young girl who's accused her own mother and her own family. Yes. Janet Nevis. She's yeah. one because she unwittingly or wittingly, it's hard to say because she was 10 years old. She essentially sent her entire family to the gallows. Her grandmother, her mother, her brother, and her sister were all wow. executed based wow. on her testimony against them. Um, and it's really hard to say what, why she did that. And I, my own personal interpretation is that she was promised um, kind of not, not luxury, but I think promises were made to her by the magistrate because she was kind of his star witness and she lived at his house for the duration of the time her family was held in the dungeon at Lancaster Castle. So horrible for them, but quite nice for her because um, this was the Devis family they were extremely poor lived in essentially like an old tower um they made a living from um they I think the grandma was a wise woman and so was the mother but they would have been very very poor and Janet who was 10 years old at the time would probably never have slept in a bed would never have you know had the kind of food that she would have been cooked at Roger Knoll's house would never have seen servants in her life. Like she would never have lived that way. She would never have been in the carriage. So she was probably kind of um used like how, to, how used can to, I milk this for as long as possible? Yeah. And yeah. also enamored and you know it's still like, enamored and starry eyed about what she um yeah. given or promised or saw there. Um I can't imagine that any child would send their entire family to execution knowingly, but um who knows? And then the ironic thing is, I I was curious about what happened to her afterwards because she was kind of on the prosecution side. Not that there was a defence side at that time because you weren't you couldn't even defend yourself in court. It was just a case of the um, allegations were read out against you and you couldn't even you had your plea and that was it. Um, and I was curious as to what happened to Janet. And about twenty years later, which would put her at about thirty years old, a Janet Devis was executed for witchcraft at York. <gasps> wow! Um, yeah, and it it likely would have been her because um, the Lancashire Yorkshire boundary was a lot further west at that time. So, I think literally, if you lived in the next town across, you'd have been tried at York, which was the capital of Yorkshire. Um, but wasn't somebody that was involved in all of this tried in York in in sixteen twelve? Yes, Janet Preston, another okay. Janet, which kind of makes it confusing at times because everyone had the same name back then. But um, yes, someone who lived lots in of Janets, house. lots of Alice's. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, and there's there's also something there's also evidence to suggest that the surname was actually Davis, but the way they because of the accent, the way they pronounced it in court, it was recorded as Davis because they'd say it like Davis. Mm. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so sad because I feel like any 10-year-old would not really understand the qu- consequences of no. what they were saying. Like, no, especially like, you know, you take adults at face value, everything as a child, like that you interpret as a child is black and white. So if somebody right. says like, you know, you can tell us if your mother's a witch or anything, like, you know, it's going to be fine. Like, you'll be fine. They'll be fine. Like they could have told her whatever and she would have believed it. Absolutely. Right. And we all watch true crime documentaries and can see how leading questions go in investigations like if you're asking leading questions to a child you're going to get the answers you want aren't you 
Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think there's like, you know, I was really fascinated when I was reading the book, having come from a criminal justice reform background, I was like, I would love for one of these um, psychology experts who looks into false confessions, I would love for them to take like a historical look at the witch trials. And oh, like, great. yeah, I'm like, where is that research? Please give it to me. <laughs> like, you know I want to read there was, it. There was a petition about 10, 15 years ago to pardon all the Lancashire witches um, wow. and scratch out the, the verdicts. And it was denied. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh my God. Wow. I don't know who, I don't know who you would even apply to, to do that. But um, yeah, that was, that was interesting. Also like what harm does it do at this point? Except to I know admit, at this yeah. point, maybe they think the tourism industry is going to fall flat, but <laughs> I don't think that it's not, it's not. That. No. Yeah. No. Oh, that for parking them. They still haven't done it. They said they won't do it. They denied it. No. Oh my goodness. Can't admit like they were wrong ever. No. So no. I think it it's probably like a legal thing, putting my lawyer hat on, like somebody's going to trace their lineage back and be like, give me some reparations. Mm. Oh, yeah, maybe like that. that's it. That's probably it. They're like, we don't have to, we don't want to give anybody free money except the crown. So, yeah. And it, it's, <laughs> it's funny as well now because, um, well, not funny, but it's, I don't know if it's the same in Salem, Kaylee, but, you know, 400 years ago, you would have done anything to prove that you had absolutely no connection to these people, that you were not a relation of a witch or associated with a witch. Whereas now, the amount of people who've come up to me and said, I'm actually related to one of the Pendle witches. And I go, oh, okay, really? Because like, it's so hard yeah. to trace these things. Not only is it hard, hard to trace, like you couldn't even trace the own pe like the people who were actually involved in it. Unless yeah, exactly. they were, you know, actual noble people who could read Oh, at least right. 30 people have come up to me and said that they are a descendant of Alice Gray and... I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. There's sure. no <laughs> records of this woman anywhere. Yeah. Like all I knew, yeah. all I knew about her, all that exists of her in history is um her plea at the witch trials, which was not guilty, and what she was accused of, yeah. um, which was the murder of a child called Anne Folds. Um, and that's all I had to go off. Yeah. And wow. then yeah. Uh, the verdict. Yeah. These these are the kind of people who would have completely slipped through the cracks had they not been accused of witchcraft. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's all we have of them. But um, yeah. is that better than absolutely nothing? Yeah, yeah. There's no way to trace back there. That's not happening. No, that's even even here, it's um like so much of like the number of people in Massachusetts who are descended from somebody from the Mayflower. I swear, like. <laughs> <laughs> Mm -hmm. Why there were like a hundred people on that ship? Yeah, like probably a million people. Say yeah, this is not Genghis Khan. Like, no, yeah. we're yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, that's like my my cousin. Yeah, my cousin who edits this podcast is um she's a history buff. Like she's gone way back into her family history. But I think the what's the I think the farthest back she's been able to go like is the Revolutionary War, um, here in the U.S. But the funniest thing like she found um. She found out that like one of her descendants, and I think it's a little easier because like they're like her her dad's line. I mean, is is has been in the U.S. for a long time, and he's also like a giant. He's like six five. My cousin huh. is like six feet tall. I'm like a a little pixie next to her. <laughs> um, she's just like this like tall, gorgeous, you know, beautiful woman, and she's like she traced her lineage back to. 
um, Abraham Lincoln, one of her um, ancestors was Abraham Lincoln's like best friend. And like, but he was like shady. Like everybody was always like, why do you trust this dude? Like he's kind of shady and um, kind of an asshole. Like that's the thing she found about him. And he's most well known because after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated he wrote a tell-all novel about abraham lincoln oh my god you are a piece of shit wow yeah i would not be going off about that yeah it's so funny um you gotta laugh about it now because like what else are you gonna do but like because it's 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 way cooler and more interesting to be associated with like a baddie or a witch yeah Yeah. right yeah Mm -hmm. you know what this um conversation though just like kind of spurred in me is thinking about the parallels between um Janet and the girls that did all of the accusing for the Salem witch trials like the psychology in that um and like thinking about how the attention for doing it is addictive um the celebrity yeah the celebrity of it and then also um you know, it's like the only opportunity that they would have ever gotten to be seen. Yes, oh, yeah. and heard, like literally yeah. heard. They get to stand in court and, and talk. Have court heard. Yeah, yeah, that's mm-hmm. got to be quite intoxicating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And probably really- says a lot about how, yeah, I think it just says a lot. You're right. Um, but after the Pendle witch trials, there was one more um, in England. I should mention that the Pendle Witch Trials was the largest mass hanging of people for witchcraft that England had ever seen. Um, Scotland had, I think, had a higher number, but obviously they're different countries. But um, what's interesting is the Pendle Witch Trials had a child as the kind of um, star witness. That was Janet, who was 10. And there was one more trial after that in England. I think the Salmsbury Witch Trials, Salmsbury's, um, very close to Pendle and happened almost immediately later and that again was a child as a star witness or more than one child very young I think even younger than 10 and again more people were found guilty and executed and I think then people started to kick off about the fact that people were losing their lives based on the testimony of of children um, so Janet Davis was one of the last the last kind of cases of that happening in the mm. UK. Yeah. I yeah. believe like, wasn't it, um, was it in, in Salem, Kaylee, where it was like the last execution was like this, like very kind grandmother or something. And that just kind of like shook everybody awake. And they were like, what the fuck have we done? Um, so I don't remember exactly which person it was that uh, kind of shook them up for it. I do know that the main person who um like got everybody to finally say okay hold on let's let's maybe think about this a little bit more was um somebody who was related to one of the magistrates or judges a wife of one of them so it was somebody who was actually like somebody who mattered in society uh was accused and um that was when things finally slowed down quite a bit um but uh Man, I can't remember exactly who it was. Well, as we know, they witch trials carried on for like at least I think it only became outlawed as a crime, um, punishable by execution in 1754 in the UK. 
So for another good 140 years. Yeah. And then there was, I mean, the last person who was executed for witchcraft, I believe it was 1789. It was the 1780s. Um, No, wait a minute. Hold on. Maybe it was eight. I need to double check on this. And I know that, um, I know from listening to the Mystic podcast, Kaylee, that like they only took the laws off the books in a lot of places in the US, like like literally in the 20th century. Like the laws were still wow. there saying yes. like, you know, it was a crime and all of this stuff. And it took until, I want to say it was, I, I know it was an odd number. I don't know if it was the 70s or the 90s where it was like people finally came forward, like practicing witches to be like, you got to take this off. This is religious persecution. And they finally did, but it took a long time to like get that off the books in a lot of states. Yeah. Wow. That's living memory. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, And it was the 1780s. It was 1782 on a Goldie. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's crazy. Like all of that is just like, it's, it's so unbelievable. And I think it's um, amazing to see now that there's such a rise in like spiritual practices now and stuff that we would have considered witchcraft, like you know, witchcraft practices back like 10 years ago or so. We're seeing such a rise in that, like now among, I mean, not just women, but like a lot of marginalized populations, I definitely in the US and the rise of like the spiritual non-religious grouping of like, I guess, religious belief here. Absolutely. And, and I and I think it's just really powerful to see that it's almost like society, it's society's moment to get a do-over, like for these marginalized groups to come out and say we're taking back our power we're not subscribing to these things and we're finally safe to do so like come at me bro like that kind of energy so yeah I think that I think that the novel really speaks to that as well because it's like you know especially with Fleetwood coming into her power not that she was like I I'm gonna like go learn this now but she's just becoming a champion for someone who is downtrodden and fit that persona absolutely and I think there's nothing more baffling to kind of you know straight white men than witchcraft <laughs> than right because it's not involving would, them I mean why would you literally the blank look with which you're met is like why would you want to do that and it's like well why would you need to do that because they don't you know yeah, yeah. right yeah because they they've been given inherent agency yeah and inherent like you know focus and um attention based around them and right works around them and is designed by them so yeah. Well, it I mean, like, sense to me that minorities and um, women identifying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's powerful, and I'm like, I'm glad I'm getting to see that rise right now. You know, yeah. and I think that's that's really like the heart of what we're doing with this podcast is like, I mean, I'm technically Hispanic, but I'm white. Like, I enjoy all of the white privilege, and I super like recognize that. Kaylee is a white woman. She's got native in her background, like Native American in her background. But like, we are very much like, you know, people who do not deal with like the persecution that minorities face. And Mm -hmm. our real goal here is to like bring those voices front and center, like the people who are adopting this and making it their own and taking it back. So, and I think like this, and that's why I really wanted to like talk about this novel because it like Mm -hmm. really shows like, like all of those themes. So it's like a perfect first like cultural podcast for our, for yeah, cultural episode for our podcast. Oh, right. And yeah. the good slash terrible thing about witch trials is they happened all over the world for centuries. So yeah, 
that there are still okay. some happening. There are certain There's, cultures yeah, that definitely still to. fear, which, um, what's the, what's the word that Absolutely. I'm looking for? Um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But and it's fascinating that as well is like how in the familiars the kind of the life at stake is Alice's because she's accused of witchcraft and of being a witch, which is punishable by death. But the ironic thing is that Fleetwood's life is also very much at stake because being a woman at that time and being pregnant, um, one in twenty women died in childbirth. So obviously those stakes were much higher for every woman you know mm-hmm. just because you're not being accused of witchcraft doesn't mean that you're certain to live or you know gonna live to be a ripe old age like every every pregnancy was a risk every childbirth was a risk and mm-hmm. I think we kind of forget that as well about how far we've come in that way as well that's actually like a really um it's a big it's been a big topic in the US the past like couple years um NPR which is National Public Radio here did a really deep dive into the American healthcare system and how it's failing mothers like you know that stat you just gave of one in women, one in 12 women dying in childbirth the most recent or one in 20 the most um like some of the figures in the US it's one in six women still that's in modern that's with modern medicine and, and it's oh my god and it's those, because like those demographics are usually women of women of color black women um yeah hispanic women for sure yeah and that's because like the the focus in american healthcare is entirely around a child's life so there hasn't been that integration of like valuing the mother's life valuing the mother's health so and you know they're they're I mean, some places are much better than others. California totally turned around like their like their maternal death rates. But it's a huge problem in a lot of places. And it's from that very fact that uh, women's lives are still not valued to the extent. And like, I mean, obviously, I don't think that's consciously. I don't think there are people in hospitals rubbing their hands together and being like, I let's like see how we can like keep women in their place but i i want to get on my podium yeah. for a second though oh, because like, have at it, it have at yes. it <laughs> yeah so it's it's not conscious at the individual but it is conscious at a industry level so mm-hmm. when it comes to pharmaceuticals when it comes to the medical industry and not like medicine you know with like all of the um oaths people take and shit like that. I'm talking about the money-making part of this, that when you have studies on things, the people that are centered at these studies are, are white faces. And that all of the information that is pulled out of these studies when it comes to, you know, like what um, drug will help somebody stop bleeding or what, um, you know, any sort of of thing that's coming from these pharmaceutical people. They're only studying white people. They're not studying the effect on any other population. And on top of that, they're also only studying them on men. So like there are certain um, quotas that studies will have to make to include other demographics, but by and large, the people... now you're yelling a little bit. Like, I think that's Sorry. the first I'm time so I've mad. had to say it. I am so mad about it. I'm so mad yeah. about it. Um, so yeah, Just I mean, by and large, great. it's white men. Yeah. And like, you know, my, my friend, one of my friends from college, uh, she's, she lives up in Scotland. Um, 
and she, when she had her child, had her first child, she was like, um, like this woman keeps coming to my house, like every couple of weeks to check on me, like from the hospital to see how things are going. And she's like, part of me is like, I've got it. Thanks. But <laughs> you don't even have that here. Like you're yeah. the one going to the doctor. And it's like, if you're in pain and you don't know what, like, especially having your first child, like you don't know what's right. You don't know what's wrong. Yeah. Like, you know, and yeah. not to mention that like women, like people, a lot of doctors like inherently don't take women's reports seriously, all of that. So I'm always telling people, I I say like, you have to stand up for yourself. Like if somebody's not, if a doctor's not listening to your complaints, you have to say like, okay, I want you to document it in my chart that I reported this and you did not see fit to give me further testing or medication. I'm like, you got to make them afraid of a malpractice lawsuit. Like, um, This is like a whole different podcast, isn't it? Child. I know. I know, like, I know, we could do there it. Are, there's kind of yeah. a small, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but there is kind of um, an uptake or a rise in doulas and that kind of thing, over yes. Yes. which is um, very interesting. And yeah. again, I think it relates back to the trying to have some control over it and um, feeling a bit powerless and um, just trying to control as many elements of it as possible, even though medicine has obviously come along leaps and bounds. Yeah. Right. I I think that the sound of like giving birth and like a nice warm water like sounds so nice. Like I yeah. I read about that. I was like that sounds like not that terrible, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I could I could do that. But I'll take that anyway. over um 17th yeah. century any day. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah. It's like in, one of my, in my earliest draft of the familiars actually, um Fleetwood. So the the novel opens with Fleetwood reading a letter from um, her previous doctor to her husband that she's not supposed to read that says if she gets pregnant again, um, she'll certainly die. Um, and that's how the novel opens. That isn't a spoiler by me giving that away. But um, no, it, no, it's like literally first page. Yeah, it's the first page. So she um, in the first draft and the second draft, actually, I had her decide to abort the baby. Um, to mm. save her own life and that is the basis of her friendship with Alice um, and that is the novel that I submitted to agents and I had a me and my agent had a chat about it and she was like look I just think that at that time so much rides on her having this baby it's far more likely that she would want to have a successful delivery than mm. um, you know value her own life over it so I changed it for the for the you know for the novel that's published and for the, the preceding drafts after that but um I like yeah, that though that's like bold go you yeah, yeah. I would the, imagine that that she would potentially do that for future children though yeah you know like a second all likelihood and I when yeah. I was looking into medicine um and kind of herbal practice at that time there absolutely were abortion remedies um which just kind of it's hard to find first-hand accounts from women at that time the early 17th century and before that and after that for quite a while but um seeing these little things like remedies of how to have an at-home abortion just kind of made me think wow it, it kind of made me feel more connected to them because you can see that the, there has historically been a need for that you know women's currency at that time was and still is in lots of ways their fertility um but they, but there was definitely a demand for ending pregnancies. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Even 400 years ago. And that was really, I guess that kind of came as a shock to me because I kind of thought, 
you know, the whole, you had to populate your farm with farmhands and workers and, um, I right. Why wouldn't you want to keep popping out kids? Exactly. You need help in your business, your homestead, your farm, whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the book that definitively flipped me, uh, to being pro-choice was, um, the Cider House Rules. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of oh, it. But I have read that. Yeah. You read it? It's so mm-hmm. good. Kaylee, you would like it. Um, yeah. And like the the thing that really like, because basically it's it's telling the story of like two, two or three different protagonists. It's a John Irving novel, which means it spans someone's entire life. And it <laughs> talks about like 8 million people. Um, but the doctor who's at the center of a lot of the story, he starts out his practice and he's um, like some, a woman comes to him for an abortion and like he, he, I think he's like working in like an old timey um, emergency room basically. And it's at the beginning of the 20th century when he's very young and he denies her and she comes back to the emergency room because she took like a back alley, like, um, like drinkable remedy. And when he opens her up to see what's wrong, her organs disintegrate in his hands. And it's like this thing that makes him realize like he like almost like takes responsibility for her death because he's like, I had the power to help this woman. I mean, she was a prostitute. He's like, I had the, I had the power to help this woman and I denied it to her. And she went out and sought the, sought whatever she could get because that's Mm -hmm. the desperation she was in. And like, you know, having grown up very sheltered in a very like Catholic culture and home, I'd never really thought about it outside of that. I'd only known my own very privileged existence and like reading something like that. I was like, Holy shit, that is profound. Like this woman was like, it was like for a lot of women, it was, it was a death sentence, no matter what happened, whether you had the child or had the abortion and like, they would rather risk it and potentially pull it off. So yeah. 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 I'm going to have to put that book in the show notes too. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things that was interesting to me when I was researching the novel was the whole kind of mysticism around midwifery at that time and and how basic it was and how um, herbal it was. Um, but obviously some of these remedies worked and you were literally putting your life in another woman's hands. And I think there's something really powerful and amazing about that. And I just think it's so terrible that they were there was there was just the assumption by people who never used their services or would have needed to that um if you could heal then you could harm and if you could bring life into the world then you could force life out of the world um and it was just so mis like woefully misunderstood in that way yeah wow yeah totally yeah i realize we never mentioned your human design um mm. especially because like we got to wrap this up. Otherwise people are going to be here all day. Not, I mean, like I think they'd listen, but you know. Um, so you're a manifesting generator with emotional authority. So we talked about that beforehand. So just for the listeners who are MGs, Stacy's one of those, which I think our conversation definitely indicates like based on yeah. all the topics and everything we talked about. I have never heard of this before. Yeah. But I'm now going to change my Instagram handle to manifesting generator. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's definitely like one of, I think like probably the most badass label. Is it? Yeah. Manifest- it's, it just sounds like so cool, right? How mm. many are there? What, how many variations are there? There are 
Well, five total, um, depending there's on whether four, you... There's four, but yeah. the manifesting generator is a subtype of one. So there's um, manifester, there's generator, and then the subgroup of manifesting generator, um, projector, and reflector. Yeah. Like, can Jesse's you be projector. reflector? No, you no. have to, you gotta, you can't be more than one. So you're one. And then you've got oh. like, I mean, it's like super layered, but that's like the most basic. And it's basically like how to manage your energy. Yeah. Basically. A lot of and people like get tripped up from. with like having manifester and generator and manifesting generator. Okay. Um, but the manifesting generator is only related to generator. It's just the, um, the ability to bypass um, certain energy exchanges. Yeah. Yeah. We, our episode that we have. More about it. Yeah. Our podcast on is really good. I think it's our, like, oh, well, listen we don't, yeah, it's good. It's a good one. And it's not, it's not super long. Um, and no, it's, it's not like our astrology episode. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> that one's a doozy. Yeah. It's good, but it's a doozy. Um, well, we also, we wanted to read cards for you today. Are you open oh, to that? Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay, cool. I picked for you, I picked my Salvador Dali deck. Oh, because I'm like, one. yeah. Cause like you're, you're such an artsy soul. So I, and like, oh, you're very colorful. Okay. So I picked this one. Kaylee, have you picked a deck for her? I did. I went with Pagan Otherworlds. Ah, okay. I that love the imagery so on good. it. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the imagery is going to, to really sing for you. For sure. Like, yeah, that's what I would have picked for her as well. Mm. So what Um, are we going to have? We're just going to pull three cards. And what we like to do is we we pull cards for all our guests because it's kind of like, it's like the takeaway that we need to have from everything we talked about. And so it's advice for you, but it's advice for everybody, you know? So um, I, I pulled three cards for you. Um, and my deck, like, you know, you, we have a tarot episode too. And so I read inversions. Kaylee, does that deck do reverses? Reverses? Another world yeah. does it reverses. Yeah. Okay. So um, I have for you, the first card I have is the four of cups reversed. So it looks like this. Um, so you can see that. And basically like the four of cups, like when it's upright, it's like, you're kind of, um, it's like, it reminds me of that saying, like, um, like from Helen Keller, where she says, like, whenever a door, like when a door closes, we stare so long at the closed door that we like, do not see the others that open for us or something like that. So I take it as like, you know, you, it's kind of um, needing perspective, because you're hype, you get hyper focused on one thing and kind of lose the bigger picture. So that's, um, and when it's reversed, it's kind of like taking that internally. So it's basically like having a lot of competing thoughts, feeling a little scattered and really needing to take a step back. And like it, it, in order to like, you have to take a step back to like really see more clearly. So I don't know if, does that resonate with you? That makes perfect sense for me because I, um, I'm writing my third novel at the moment and it, it, I do write in that very scattered way where um, for me, I just my method is just to plow forwards and just reach the word count. I don't look back. I don't edit. I don't think about it. It's very instinctive. It's very kind of onward motion. And I'm definitely now at that point where I'm looking forward to stepping back and taking in the whole view of it. Um, 
So that makes perfect sense to me at the moment because I'm looking forward to actually working out what it's about. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. that. Right. So your second card that I have for you is the Nine of Cups. And like I always say with cups, uh, you know, they're kind of like relationship based. It's like emotions, relationships, that kind of thing. But it's not necessarily all the time. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've got that emotional authority. So, you know, you've got lots of emotions. So that makes sense to me. Um, So the nine of cups, it's kind of like celebration, basically, like things are kind of coming to a head, like you're starting to see the fruits of your labor. And you're starting to like, feel it more importantly than anything like you're you're coming out of that place of like you know even in the imagery of this card like that guy looks of the four of cups he looks beat he looks very tired Mm -hmm. and um what's funny is that in the imagery of this nine of cups card is it almost looks like she has a tablet like she's oh yeah 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 so it's like it looks like you know she's She's finally feeling like that process of like okay it's coming together and I feel good about things so that makes total sense to me because I am getting really close to finishing it and um, I feel like the last part is always the easiest to write of a novel because you just know your characters so well by then, you know the story so well um, and it for me it's always the most joyous part to write because everything's coming together and it is like a party in that sense where you see all your loved ones and you get to catch up with them and celebrate and kind of tie everything up together nicely so mm. a nice one what's funny that you say that party is that the the last card I pulled for you is the uh ten of pentacles so um it, and it's inverted but it looks like this and it it literally it looks kind of like a party so it's basically yeah. what the ten of pentacles is about it's like family and party time and I mean even though it's inverted I mean like we could take that literally like it's quarantine your party's gonna be not <laughs> not out in person the party's over Can't yeah go. but like the party I think is in you like you're just exactly what you just said feeling like you get to spend all this time with like the the family and these characters you created mm. and I love the imagery of this card because it's basically a party of women like love that yeah look at that debauchery yeah it's just like um yeah it's I think it's that you're in a place of celebrating and so much of what you write is so um like feminist and empowering in that sense so yeah it's about like I think you've got like you know that party of like female energy oh thank you yeah that's not it's not on purpose that I write feminist books, definitely not. And I think people are surprised when I say this, but um, I'm far more interested in, I think why I'm consistently drawn to writing historical fiction is I'm very interested in, in and attracted to reading and writing about kind of the constraints and limitations that have been put on women historically, rather than like, I don't like, I can't imagine I'll ever write about like the pioneers or the kind of you know the women who really were like headline makers and kind of game changers Mm -hmm. I'm far more interested in like the very small domic spaces that have been allotted to women um I think think that that I always write about them yeah that's um you know even something in the novel that like came through was um like even little things like like how she would brush her teeth like she just use a rag like cleaner teeth I thought that like I had I had always wondered about things like that and I was like wow okay like even those little details I was like wow I I've always wondered like how do people in those times like clean themselves and you know yeah, engage in hygiene it was yes that's cool 
the beautiful thing about this is that these stories are going to be inherently and poignantly feminist because you're telling stories that were either purposefully or just, you know, by, you know, the building of society erased. Um, so, you know, it's, it is going to be feminist either way. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, think anything that's yeah. written from the point of view of women back at a time when because men have always the pen of history has always been held by men mm -hmm. history is according to men um they've always had their side of things so yeah um anything anything that is the other side that hasn't necessarily been reported on or even not report like uh the lost orphan which is my second novel is not based on any um real life figures and yet is about is, is kind of an inherently female story about what it would have been like to be a woman at that time, which is which is the 1750s in London. Mm. Yeah. Will you tell us more about that book? Because I know it's it's out now, so people can get it. It's out now, yes. Um, do we want to do the rest of the reading before we get into oh, it? Okay, oh, okay, yeah, okay, okay, yes. Sorry. Yeah, okay, yeah, I know. I'm so I'm just so excited. I know. Um, I can't wait to hear yeah. about it either, but I don't want us <laughs> to like I want my get away from it. Yeah. yeah. I, anyway, I just want to summarize and say, I really think this reading is about, um, it's just kind of like managing how you've been managing your energy of like pulling back and like embracing how you work and like enjoying the fruits of that labor. So I think that all of us can kind of take away, like, how am I almost, how am I stymieing my natural energy flow? And like, how can I kind of embrace it in a way that feels empowering and that can lead me to like feeling that, um, like that internal accomplishment. Absolutely. And I think we, we spoke about this, I think before we started recording. But yes. I've been working for myself now, working as a full-time writer for nearly six months. And I would say I've only lately, like in the past few weeks, got to a point where I've finally accepted the fact that I can't start work before 11am midday, like that just doesn't happen for me. And I've been fighting and fighting and fighting it, thinking, you know, all the serious writers are at their desk by nine, they're showered, they're dressed, they've had breakfast. And that's just not me. And, since, and ever since I have just accepted that and been okay with it, the work has come just as easily as it wasn't doing before. Um, so I think, like you said, part of that is finally relaxing into my own style and accepting that it's not normal office hours. Sometimes I'll only work for like a couple of hours a day, but that's fine because it's not it's not typing, it's writing. And I think if it's not coming, you can't just sit down. I think part you 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 have to sit down and force it because it's not always fun. And if you only waited until you felt inspired or until you wanted to write, you would never write a single thing. But um, on the other side of that. I can sometimes be super productive in like an hour and a half, two hours and finish all my work, finish my daily word count, which is 2000 words in that time. Sometimes it does take me eight hours, but then there's the, um, you know, you just think, oh, well, I've, you know, I've done, I've done my work in two hours. I, sh I can't just work for two hours a day. I need to, I'll crack on and try and write like 4,000 words. And that just doesn't really work for me. Um, yeah. I've got definitely this much space, um, from which to give each day. Yeah. yeah there, there is a great episode from the 
the podcast Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, and she brings on Neil Gaiman to talk about like the yeah the talk about the talk about the process of writing with somebody who is dealing with a creative block in writing her second novel, and he talks about like you know there's this. writing your first novel is easy he said because like it's the first time you're like really like doing this when you become a novelist like it is your work and you have to be comfortable like sitting down every day and finding that process Mm -hmm. we'll link to that in the show notes and I will also send that to you because I think yeah I love hearing about how writers work it's endlessly fascinating to me I'm very bummed that she only did like two seasons of that podcast because every single episode it's about the creative process and she like has like you know um artists non-famous artists like write in and ask her a question and then she like brings her female friends on to like get or her famous friends not just females she brings her famous friends on to give advice as well like so she gives them advice and then she's like all right you're you're a writer so I'm gonna bring on Neil Gaiman to talk to you and give you advice it's very very cool yeah that is very cool um ready to read it yeah so it's It's actually not too dissimilar, but from a a sort of different perspective. And I think that that's um, echoed in a few of these cards that that perspective is key. So the first card that I pulled for you is the Seven of Swords. Get the Seven of Swords all the time as well. Ah, that's amazing. So the key thing I find with the Seven of Swords, especially in a lot of what we're talking about, is that diplomacy and judiciousness with your time. Um, the other part of it too, I think is sort of diplomatically, um, defending your own process. So typically the seven of swords will come up. It's meant to be like after the battle and, you know, sort of rallying the troops for the next, um, for the next wave of it. And there's a combo of doing that for yourself, but also defending against others who are trying to say, no, do it this way. Mm -hmm. Um, and what I love with that, the next card that I pulled for you is the nine of swords, but in this case it's reversed. So I'll show you the the imagery on that. And so I'm going to zoom in a little bit so you can see this um, dove with this gold chain. So the nine of swords has quite a bit to do with um, transformation. And one of the interesting things to do with it too, is that there's a little bit of like a haunted quality to it. um, So that like we're constantly transforming because we're constantly trying to let go of our past, but as the chain on this um, swan would show that, you know, we're constantly tied to it because it's part of our story. So having this reversed is really, I think, a true metamorphosis of integrating past um, and and using past as a means of transformation. Um, So really like looking back at patterns and looking back at history and saying, this is where we can break these chains. Um, The last card that I pulled for you is the three of wands. Mm. And big thing on this one here for me is perspective, um, that this gives you a high vantage point and 
a um, sort of creative license, the wands are uh, associated with like fire signs, things like that. Um, but they're also very closely tied to the magician card in the major arcana. Um, so, so you can see where the work has gone into setting out these voyages and you can see their stories and you can tell them from a perspective that they can't see in experiencing it. Um, so yeah, the that sort of bird's eye view perspective and being able to tell stories in a way that um, even people experiencing them wouldn't be able to say in their own words. Maybe that. some, maybe maybe hopefully some literal travel coming up soon. Maybe uh, yeah. yes, yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah, the three of wands would definitely have literal travel in it, and then um, the yeah. seven of swords could have some travel involved in it too. Yeah. Well, I'm literally traveling on. Thursday back home to London which is going to be interesting because I've for various reasons we've locked down in Yorkshire um it was where I was writing my third novel but the time has come where I could no longer afford to pay rent and a mortgage so yeah Mm -hmm. well um I think well three of swords too is uh overseas so maybe you're going to be doing a U.S. book tour fingers crossed three of wands Oh, three of wands, my bad. Mm-hmm. Three of wands, yeah. Yeah, I would well, love that too. I'd love that, yeah. Yeah. Please, Fingers please, please. crossed, yeah. And then we, we'll we'll definitely show up at your book tour. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take your own Salem if you want to come to Massachusetts. Oh, my God, I'd love Oh, my that. God. Oh, Pilgrimage, I'll come too. Yeah, yeah that that do it, really please. Fun. Absolutely. Please. What's the town that you live in? So I live in Waltham, which yeah. is uh, kind of northwest of Boston. Amazing. So not too far. I've never yeah. been part of the world. So hopefully that's what my three of ones. Yeah, hopefully. Stacy, tell us about your novel yeah. that's out right now. What would you come and talk to us about, please? Yeah. <laughs> my second novel, The Lost Orphan, is set in Georgian London. It's set in the 1750s. And it's about a young woman named Bess Bright who has a baby daughter who she can't take care of. Um, so she leaves her at the Foundling Hospital, which is a home for abandoned babies. Um, and six years later, she saved up enough money to buy her baby back, goes to collect her, only to, only to be told that she has already collected her um, the day after she brought her in six years ago. So she has to set out to find out who has her little girl and why. Oh, my goodness. So it, it's, quite, it's there's a lot of similar themes to be found Um that are in the familiars you know it's about it's essentially about two women um motherhood class equality kind of like a bit of a power struggle in there so lots of the same themes wow it's exciting yeah and it has a different name in the uk it's the foundling in the uk it's a family in the uk and i got the idea for that again at a real place um the foundling museum which is on the site of the old Foundling Hospital. So the Foundling Hospital was founded in the 1730s for babies at risk of abandonment. So people could take their children there, um, no matter their background or circumstance. So it was kind of like an orphanage, but for children who whose parents were still alive. And this was, an, this was at a time before there were any sort of social structures for um you know, ch- the care of children, the care for abandoned children. So um, it was the first place of its kind, really remarkable place, really moving place. Um, it was hugely oversubscribed, hugely popular because this was at a time when 
um you know obviously pre-contraception um there was a lot of shame around illegitimacy so the reality is hundreds of thousands of babies were born that um couldn't be cared for or their parents couldn't for whatever reason couldn't care for them and um it was a place that I knew nothing about until I went along to the museum and just thought I have to write about this place because what struck me um first of all was the admission system at the time that I'm writing about in the late 1740s was lottery night so um women who wanted to who were hoping for a place for their babies there babies had to be less than two months old they would go along to lottery night um with their babies and they would draw colored balls out of a bag and the color of the ball um meant that their child got a place or it didn't and um because what what interested me most about this most of all was that people kind of London society and the rich and celebrated would come along and watch lottery night oh god and they would buy a ticket and it was kind of like a fundraising event slash a sort of like sentimental porn if that doesn't sound too graphic a term you know how people would go along and watch hanging days it's kind of all dressed you know all a kind of similar thing the very macabre um so people would go and watch babies being handed over um to this hospital and as soon as I found out about lottery night I thought this is the opening image of the book you know a woman who goes along and has no idea if she's going to get a place or not for a child because it wasn't merit-based it was purely based on chance um and it just made me think the rest of the rest of these women's lives and the lives of their children depend on what colour ball they pull out of a bag that seemed crazy to me um and that was the first scene in the novel. Wow. wow. Holy shit. It's mm, heart Oh, God. It's very dark. Oh, my God. So clearly I'm going to get that immediately. I and another thing that's that, so fucked up. I need to read it now. It's like, so messed up. And another thing that um, made me want to write about it was the, the foundling hospital tokens, which um, if you go along to the museum, which is in Bloomsbury in London, um, you can see all the tokens. So women basically left little tokens with their babies that were recorded against their names um and because because the kind of women who needed to leave their children there had nothing in their life essentially um they were just really small little everyday objects like buttons and playing cards and hairpins and um scraps of fabric torn from their dresses and um, they were kind of they were the purpose of them was as essentially sort of like secret deposits so, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the purpose of them essentially was secret deposits. So if they ever found themselves in a position where their circumstances had changed enough to take their child back out of the hospital and raise him or her themselves, um, they would name what token they left with their baby and on what date, because the children's names were changed and um, for for various reasons, but just so that there was nothing to then connect them with their birth family um and just seeing these tokens which were all kind of you didn't have to leave a token you would only I guess leave one if you had a real hope or design to collect your child or reclaim your child and because they're such worthless things they just take on this huge significance this huge poignancy and when you see them all together it's incredibly moving because every single one represents a child and its mother that were never reunited. 
Um, and the sad reality is only 1% of children were claimed back out of the hospital. So you really would leave your children there for life. It was an institution, sort of pre-institution days, but um, they would receive, it was quite a, it was very, it was a very popular place um, initially and for many years after that because um, the children would receive an education, they were prepared for apprenticeship, so the girls would be prepared for service, boys would be prepared for the army or the navy, they'd have access to doctors, they'd have, you know, a roof over their head, food in their belly, so you can see why it would be such a um, beneficial proposition for a lot of impoverished people at that time who probably didn't have enough money to feed however many children they had in the first place so another mouth to feed would have been a disaster um so it was hugely popular and it only closed down in the 1940s so wow 200 years um it was operating yeah and I actually met I actually met with two foundling children who are now men both in their 80s um who were left at the hospital by their by their mothers both of them were legitimate one of them was happily reunited with his family the other one was not but um, oh my god wow but it's another instance of oh you know how different it was in those times but no it's not it's not different thankfully thankfully we we have a lot better social care systems and systems set up for children in care but um yeah that was the the one and only method of that was the one and only place in England at that time where that was this kind of a safe place for children to go and also I would assume like a place for like some sort of upward mobility so coming from absolutely yeah, yeah so coming from like ended up better off than they started out wow wow that is powerful I cannot wait to pick that up yeah, we're obviously going to link to link to that in the show notes, guys. So oh, great, thanks. Yeah, I'll link to <laughs> both the yeah that oh that sounds so good. I'll link to both the U.S. and U.K. one, so that way, no matter where you are in the world listening to this, you have a resource to go get it. So, um, where can people find you online? I am on Twitter, Stacy underscore Halls. Um, I'm also on Instagram, Stacy Halls Author. And I have a readers club at stacyhalls.com. So you can sign up there no matter where you are in the world and get news and kind of updates from me and exclusive content and things like that. I'm on it. It's wonderful. Good. Can't wait. Yeah. I'm on it. It's like one of the only subscription newsletters I open. Uh, like, what's she up to now? <laughs> the key is quality, not quantity. Yes. Yeah. So yes. like she will not spam you guys. She will no. not spam you. I was it like, is, if we're going to yeah. do a newsletter, it has to be not regular at all because yeah. that's yeah. an instant way to lose my interest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good stuff. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for, for talking Thank to you. us. And you guys and listeners, you guys can um, find us, Millennial Mystics. We have a website, millennialmysticspodcast.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the things. We're on Instagram at Millennial Mystics. We're on Twitter as M Mystics Pod. Kaylee's going to be taking that over. So if you want some quality rants, 
Oh, good Lord. Go, yeah. Go find you want a lot here. of soapbox. <laughs> I told her, I was like, here, you can have Twitter because um, it's basically just screaming into the void. So it's <laughs> just my favorite. That's yeah. my favorite. <laughs> I'm like, oh, let me write like a really like nice caption and put a picture <laughs> with it. Kaylee is like, you know, here, here's a megaphone, Kaylee. Yeah. So yeah. Um, we have a Facebook community as well. And that way you in that there you can talk to us. Like we're all up in there. So we're pretty approachable. And don't forget to rate and review because that helps us get into more ears and spread our message of like really bringing um, marginalized mystics to the center. Yes. So. Yeah. Anyway, Stacy, thank you again. This was on like this was even better than I expected. I mean, I told oh. you to account for two hours, and it took us three. And I'm all How about that it. So, Sorry, that I don't the know. Three hours of my entire life. Oh, thank you, Samezies. I loved it. Thank you so much. Yes, thanks. All right. Awesome. Have a good one, listeners. We will talk to you soon. The nursemaid came to the doorway and nodded. Her arms were empty. She's fit for admission. Her name is Clara, I said, feeling overcome with relief. A few months before, when my belly was small, on one of the more genteel streets around St. Paul's, where the townhouses stretched up to the sky and jostled for space with the printers and the booksellers, I'd seen an elegant woman dressed in a deep blue gown, glowing like a jewel. Her hair was golden and shiny, and one plump pink arm held a little hand belonging to a child with the same yellow curls. I watched as she tugged at her mother, and the woman stopped and bent down, not caring that her skirts were brushing the ground, and put her ear to the little girl's lips. A smile broke out across her face. Clara, you are funny, she had said, and took up her daughter's hand again. They moved past me, and I rubbed my growing stomach and decided if I had a girl, I would name her Clara, because then in a very small way, I would be like that woman. The man was unmoved. She will be christened and renamed in due course. So she would be Clara to me and no one else, not even herself. I sat stiff-backed, clenching and unclenching my fists. And how will you know who she is if her name changes when I come back? A leaden tag is attached to each child on arrival, bearing a number that refers to their identifying records. Number 627. I'll remember it. Special thanks to Jack Da Silva for our dope-ass intro music, Lindsay Allman for our transcendent logo and cover art, and Hope Clinton for her superb audio editing. Tune in every Friday for the latest episode, and don't forget to rate and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.